welcome to Your Financial Planet podcast with David Valliere and the Synergy Capital Solutions team. This is the show that brings you synergistic financial strategies to help you enjoy the fullness of today and empower your next generation. Join us for this journey to help you synergize your finances. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Your Financial Planet. I'm your host, David Valliere. And today we're joined by Jordan Andrusiak, Norton Stern, and Jeff Allen to cover frequently asked questions. We've been asking for clients to give us some feedback on questions that they would want answered on the air. And so Jordan, Norton, Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Ready. What I was thinking today would be just uh, random questions, no particular order, just kind of volley them to the next one person to the next and we'll get some feedback for our listeners so if you guys are ready let's let's just jump right in so jordan i'll start with you first question should i be investing or paying down debt yeah that's a very very good question ultimately this depends on the kind of debt you hold and what your overall goals and objectives are financially spoiler alert we always want to go back to what your plan states but taking a look at kind of the three common types of debt, credit card debt, the answer nine times out of 10 is to pay this down first because the rates are typically onerous. Student loan debt, it depends on if it's subsidized as well as what the rates are and what what time is left. And then a mortgage, um, home mortgage, the, the discussion comes down to putting dollars into a use asset. So your home that has really no liquidity until you sell it and or ability to grow from an asset standpoint versus investing into an asset with the potential for growth, you know, your, your typical investment side of the equation. This is always offset with the expectations for how long you'll be in the house and what your current rate is. We always want to balance paying down debt with maintaining emergency funds in the background and then take a look at starting investing in taxable investments. And so, Like I said, this always comes back to your plan and really what your personal goals and objectives are, as well as your balance sheet. Thank you. So Norton, one for you. My brother-in-law just gave me a tip that I think you should check out. What are your thoughts on that? We'll check out any company that, that you'd like us to check out. I doubt very much that he has a tip that we can't research because it always has to be public information. If the tip is insider information or not public, you know, it's illegal. We can't be buying into anything like that, nor can any client. It's illegal. My short answer is there are no tips that got to your brother-in-law that hasn't gotten down to everybody else also. But we're happy to check out any company that you'd ask us to check out and tell you what we see. Jeff, one on retirement here. What are the easiest ways to save for retirement? You want to pay off first any high interest credit card debt, but in the meantime, you want to be maxing out all your options. If, in fact, you work for an employer that has a 401k plan, that's your best bet as the personal limit is 19500 If you're over 50, it's 26000 and your employer can can contribute profit sharing con- or what we used to call profit sharing contributions up to a total contribution of 57,000, 63,500 if you're over 50. So that's your best bet. If in fact you don't have a uh, employer sponsored plan, then you're sometimes SEP, sometimes simples. There are a whole a variety of other plans that you might do for yourself, but the basic choice is an IRA. 
This year, those limits are 6000 for individuals, 7000 if you're over 50. But you want to take advantage of any tax-deferred savings plan like that because it's saving you on taxes in the current year. And the most important thing for many of our clients is once that year goes by, you can't make that contribution with the caveat that you always have until April 15th of the following year to make IRA contributions, not so for 401k salary deductions. This year, the IRA contributions are extended to July 15th. Take advantage of those employer-sponsored plans. Take advantage of individual plans. The government established them so that you could save for retirement, and they're great opportunities for you. Jordan, I'll come back to you with one on education. When planning for children's education, should we be considering a UTMA, UGMA account? or looking at a 529 plan? As I stated before, it always comes back to your plan. And in this case, a little bit of the tax side as well as control. So with a 529, you get a little bit more of a tax advantage in that 529 assets grow tax-free, as well as the withdrawals that are used for qualified education expenses. They are also tax-free when you take them out. Now, for a UTMA, there is a small amount of contributions that are considered tax-free or tax-advantageous, then another small amount taxed at a child's rate, and the remainder is taxed at typically a trust rate, which is going to be more often than not higher than a child's effective tax rate. The control of fund side, a UTMA or a UGMA, the custodian, or in most cases, a parent, they have control until the age of majority, often times age 21 and in many states, age 18 in some states, then the assets are completely turned over to the child. So what can happen as you're, you're entering the college years is that those dollars could be in the child's name, meaning that they can use them for whatever they want. 529, the owner is always the controlling person. So that would typically be the parent. And then the other side of all of this, the last option or the last thing to consider is contributions. For 529s, really anybody can make a contribution. So, you know, I can make a contribution to my nieces or my nephew's 529. A UTMA or a UGMA is typically a one-to-one person. So the owner is the only person or custodian is the only person that typically can gift into that. Uh, so, Norton, I'll come back to you. H- how can I be sure I don't get involved in a Madoff scam? We used to get that question a lot more back in the Madoff days. But everybody who lost money with Bernie Madoff wrote checks to Bernie Madoff Securities, and there was no such thing. The other thing is every brokerage firm has something called CIPIC, which is a securities Investor Protection Corporation, um, which a government set up in 1970. It kind of insures $500,000 per customer for theft. And you have to understand that with us, nobody writes a check to Synergy Capital Solutions. It's to Fidelity or it's to some other big brokerage firm and not to our particular company. So everybody on most of these large firms where you write checks to are insured to 500, and that includes $250,000 of cash for theft. In the old days, it also included law certificates, but corporations aren't issuing certificates very much anymore. The other thing is, if you invest in these cash management accounts like 
Fidelity Cash Management, for instance, they're insured with the FDIC, and they use five different banks. So you're actually insured to about a million two fifty of cash. The fact of the matter is, it's know who you're sending a check to. If it's a large firm, you're pretty much covered with SIPIT. So that's my answer to that. No more checks to individual companies that are major brokerage firms. Jeff, coming back to you, what age should I retire and what age maximizes my retirement? That's a very personal question. And many of my clients are physicians. And so what we stress with them is we're not really talking about retirement, but what we're talking about is financial freedom. We want you to establish financial freedom by your target age, whether that's 55, 62, 65, whatever, that at that point in time, should you decide you still want to continue doing what you've uh, done, your profession, you're doing it because you love it, but not because you need the uh, income and the check. Financial freedom is the goal. Now, the government has established certain age guidelines, the first being 65 for Medicare. Many of our early retirees who retire prior to that age realize it's very expensive for health insurance. The next thing is that required minimum distributions from your retirement plan, the government's been giving you deferred growth all the many years you've been contributing. And so they want to start getting some of those that tax revenue back. It, as most of us know, it used to be 70 and a half. The SECURE Act last December extended that to age 72 for required minimum distributions. And so you don't have to take income out of your retirement plans till then. Social security is a very complex subject. Almost 60% of Americans file for social security benefits at age 62 or 63. All of our studies have shown that for virtually any client, you maximize your lifetime income from social security if you're going to live past the age of usually around 83, you maximize your lifetime income if you defer taking your Social Security benefits until age 70 because the government's giving you a six and a quarter percent growth on your benefit from age 62 to 66. And then from 66 to 70, it's an 8% gain. And it's hard to get that kind of return on your money anywhere else. But in our planning for our clients, we do have computer software that will tell us exactly when's the best time to take your Social Security benefits. But there is a real uh, stimulus and motivation to try to wait till 70 to collect that. So we help our clients establish if they do have a financial freedom or retirement goal of an earlier age, then we plan on assets that will carry them until the start of Social Security and to the uh, start of required minimum distribution so they can continue to get that tax deferred growth. It is a complex question, and hopefully my answer hasn't been too complex. All right. Thanks, Jeff. So, Jordan, let me come back to you. Another education question. And I know this is important for people in Florida as well. I get this often, but 529 versus a prepaid plan, which is best for me? Can you talk to us about that? And I, I sound like a little bit of a broken record, but it all comes back to your plan and what your, your expectations are for your children's education. With a prepaid plan that covers tuition costs, typically for an in-state public college, and what you may find is that that may not cover things such as books, room and board, or graduate school expenses. With a 529, you, can, you have more flexibility around paying for education expenses. Not only are you able to maybe get a little bit more dollars used for out-of-state schools and or private colleges, 
but you can also use that for books, room, and board. And so again, if your expectation is that your child or children are going to go to an in-state public college and you're planning on only covering tuition costs and using other dollars for books, room and board, et cetera, then a prepaid plan may be the way to go. If you want to have that flexibility, then a 529 plan is, is the way to go. And sometimes the answer is a little bit of both. Thank you. Norton, why would you ever invest in anything that doesn't pay interest or dividends? Some plans call for income and would need a lot of dividends and interest. However, most plans have a, a segment that allows for total return. Let me, let me give you a little instance. Back in 1980, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 963. You know, now it's like 24,000. So we're talking about 1,000. Back then, there was a stock in 1980 that was selling for $390 a share and didn't pay any dividends at all. Now, that's very, very expensive, $390 a share in 1980. Why would anybody buy it? Well, in 2000, that particular stock was worth $46,000 a share. In 2006, $100,000 a share. And last night, it closed at $267,000 a share and never paid a dividend. Now, some companies think that rather than paying out dividends, they can add better value to their clients by reinvesting in the company and growing it and making that total return number better. Those are growth companies. That particular company was Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway, which owns Geico, Duracell, Dairy Queen, Fruit of the Loom, and many, many other companies. So think about that. From 1980, never paid a dividend, $390 a share, closed last night at $267,000 a share. Now, that's an extreme case, of course, but many companies don't pay dividends and reinvest back in their own company over a long period of time, if your plan allows for it, do very, very well. Jeff, let me come back to you. Roth versus traditional, which should I choose? Well, that's the $64,000 question and argued about constantly because of course, uh, some basics, the Roth, of course, you contribute after tax dollars, but your investment grows tax-free and you take out your withdrawals tax-free. The traditional IRA, you're getting a tax deduction for. It's a, a so-called qualified plan. You're getting a tax deduction for the dollars you put in, so you save on that year's taxes. Gross tax deferred, but then you're taxed when it comes out. So the question, in order to make the, answer that question, we need to know what future tax rates are, how long you're going to live, and what investment returns are. Basically, all three unanswerable questions. There are calculators online. Uh, Fidelity, whom we use as a calculator, that help you make that decision. There are benefits to each. The Roth, of course, has no RMDs, and that makes people who have excess assets happy. Uh, with the recent SECURE Act, the uh, so-called stretch IRA went away. That used to be a favorite because people could gift their, their make their children or grandchildren their beneficiaries and they could stretch it out over their entire life. So you might give it to a 20-year-old grandson and they could take RMDs based on an age of 20, 21, on and on and on and make that uh, allow that to grow forever. So I always advise clients, well, probably the best thing is hedge your bets. We don't know what future tax rates are. We can probably bet that they're going to be higher based on 
all the borrowing that had to salvage this past year and prior years. And so if you hedge your bets and have some in a Roth, some in a traditional, then you're getting what's called distribution diversity, which means some of the income you're taking out is taxed at current rates and some of it from the Roth is tax-free. But it is a tough decision to make and we can help our clients in conjunction with their CPA, which has important input into this question, make that decision. Definitely sounds like one that needs to be tailor-made for each client, and they probably need to spend some time with you on that one. And that's the benefit of planning, why we use a planning approach for all of our clients to, uh, to individualize that decision. Good point. Jordan, uh, you seem to be getting all the education questions today, but <laughs> will 529 assets keep our child from getting financial aid? That's a bit of a, of a double-edged sword. So if it's in the parent's or child's name, it's considered parental assets and can affect a FAFSA. So when you're talking about financial aid from a government standpoint, that's what you're, you're looking at. The first 20K of assets are protected from the calculation on the, of the parent's assets. Above that, there's a multiplier of 5.64% of parental assets compared to student assets, which would be multiplied at 20% being uh, considered. Now, on the distribution side, so when you take the dollars out for qualified education expenses, they are not considered in the base year income from a year-over-year standpoint. And the FAFSA takes a look back at two years for the, the income to determine what the loan ability is. Now, if it's in the grandparent's name from a 529 standpoint, as, as they're the custodian and the owner, it does not affect the FAFSA from an aid standpoint, although distributions are assessed as income. So for the first 50% of the income that comes out that's being used for education expenses does affect that base year income. It's a little bit of a balancing act. And I would say to any listener who does not have that memorized, please reach out to Jordan because <laughs> there was a lot there and I appreciate yeah. the answer. It's a, it's a very tricky, very tricky answers. Definitely need some planning on that. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate that. As a matter of fact, I'll offer a prize to any of our listeners who does have that memorized. <laughs> we might have a job for you here at Synergy. So Norton, let me come back to you. It seems like I'm getting some edgier questions for you, but you can handle it. What do you guys okay. think will happen to the market if there's a change in admi the administration in November? I'm sure no one's surprised that we're getting that a lot. And sure. here's the thing. For whatever reason, if there's a change in the administration, people are saying that, that the market will be affected and it'll go down. You know, I look back at just what happened with, with COVID. And in 15 trading days, the Dow dropped about 17%. And about two months later, it was back to within 3%. That's with people not working, almost as much unemployment as since the Depression. Businesses closed, nobody's spending. And if for whatever reason, if there's an administrative change and the market is affected by that, people are, you know, people are, we're looking at our people working, our people spending, and what do we look out 12 months after that happens? And the market seems to be eating up this kind of stuff very, very quickly. If people are working, 
if Americans are spending, the idea of a sell-off for any reason, and here we had a, a giant sell-off, and the market reacted the way it did. I don't know what's going to happen if there's a change in administration. A few days ago, the market dropped 700 points, and some said part was COVID, and part was we're starting to look at the polls, and there might be a change, and we're starting to get some reaction to that. But if I was to look out 12 months after that, I would say that any kind of sell-off that happened for any reason, pretty much the market will go by the old reasons why it goes up or goes down. And that has to do with people working, companies earning money, and people spending. And that's my answer. Thank you. I know that was a tricky one. Jeff, coming back to you, let's talk about Roth conversions. First of all, is what is a Roth conversion? And then the second question to that, because not every listener is going to know what that is, but this, the, the real question is when and how are Roth conversions appropriate? And then maybe you can talk about what uh, we call a backdoor Roth. The Roth conversion is a uh, Ed Slot's uh, CPA who's made his lifetime career on basically on converting traditional IRAs to Roth. Now, what's the rationale? Well, Roth, as Ed Slot says, once taxed, never taxed again, uh, as opposed to a traditional IRA that is always taxed because for the traditional IRA, every withdrawal you take is taxed at current income tax levels with a Roth you're putting in after tax assets, or if you do a conversion, convert your traditional IRA to a Roth, you're paying taxes at that time. And so it's never taxed again. And of course, also has the benefits of no RMDs. Now, there are some interesting rules. Roth contributions, there's a ceiling of 139,000 a year income for a single filer and 206,000 a year for joint filers. Above that level, you, you're not allowed to make a Roth contribution. But interestingly, for a Roth conversion to convert traditional IRA assets over to a Roth, there is no income ceiling. So many of our higher income clients have chosen to convert those assets to limit future taxes during retirement. Now, the IRS caught on to that in September of 2013 and applied the so-called pro rata rule, which says if you convert traditional IRA assets to Roth assets, you in fact will pay a pro rata tax on that whatever amount that conversion is of the total IRA assets. So for people with large IRAs, it's very difficult to make a conversion work well because you're you're not getting much tax advantage. But for those, uh, many of our clients have all their retirement assets in 401k, don't have a traditional IRA. So for many of those clients or for their spouse, they make an annual IRA contribution and then can immediately convert that to a Roth account and pay no tax on that conversion and they escape the income limits. This backdoor Roth was frowned upon by the IRS for several years and so there was a strategy that you had to leave the assets in for a year before you converted them. And then in the last, about two years ago, the IRS came out with a tax letter and finally blessed the so-called backdoor Roth. And so many of our clients use that technique to make non-deductible, in many cases, traditional IRA contributions, and then convert it over to a Roth. And over many years, that even though it may be a limit of 6000 or 7000 over many years between the growth and those contributions, that mounts up to a 
good chunk of retirement assets and then once again gives you this so-called distribution diversity that you're taking money out of your traditional source, your 401k, but you're also taking some money out of Roth and it lowers your blended tax rate. That's a, that is a complicated answer, but for somebody that has a long-term strategy can save a lot of money and, and accrue a lot of retirement assets over time. So thank you for that. Uh, Jordan, I'll come back to you. Talk to us a little bit about, the question is, what is active versus passive management? Talking about in, investment strategies, you talk to us about active versus passive management. I'm actually going to start with passive management. What that means is that the investment strategy itself, whether it's an exchange traded fund or a mutual fund, or even you know having a, a, a portfolio that follows a passive strategy, that means they're following an index. So something like the S&P 500. And what they're doing is they're basically saying, okay, the 500 holdings that are in the S&P 500, this holding has X percentage exposure within that index. This holding has Y exposure within that index. And they're tracking exactly to that. And so when holdings or companies come in and out of the S&P 500, they're also trading based on that as well. The active side of that of uh, management is really having a manager in place who follows more to a target or a benchmark. They're not necessarily following exacting to an index. They're maybe following to more of an investment policy statement. So they make a bit more decisions based on underlying fundamentals of companies or what targets they're going for in that investment policy statement. I think of a fishing analogy, passive management would be just floating down the river and whatever comes your way, comes your way. Whereas active management would be strapping a motor on the, the boat and maybe going back upstream and hitting a, hitting a fishing hole you really like a couple of times. So that's kind of how I think yep. about it. Yep, okay, exactly. Thank you. Good analogy. <laughs> All right. Thank you. So Norton, I got another one for you here. And this one tugs at my heart a little bit. The question is... It, starts with a statement. It says, I'm new to this. My spouse handled everything relating to finances. Now that they are gone, how do I follow what's happening as the years go by? Before you answer the question, I, I personally can relate to this. I've, I've had a client in the past that this was their exact situation where her husband had handled everything and then he passed and she came to me and said, I'm starting from scratch, a big education curve there. Talk to us about that. Unfortunately, it happens a lot. About 10 years ago, a good friend of mine died suddenly. And he handled everything, paid bills on the computer. Had, everything he did, is, his wife knew nothing about. And it was a mess figuring out where everything was. And nobody should ever, ever get it. You know, if there's one thing you learn from this whole podcast, if, if you're one of those families where one takes care of all this finance business, you have to sit down with your spouse and you have to fill them in because it could be scary and cumbersome to unwind and figure out where everything is. And it's so unnecessary. All it takes is a few minutes. Plus, get a document locator, which we can help you with, where everything is, who you trust, who you call, what your passwords are, how you're paying your bills, get a document locator. But now 
what happens? Well, when that particular spouse comes to our office, we start from the beginning. We actually do lessons. What is the stock? What is the bond? How does interest work? How does everything work? How does it relate to your plan as we do your plan? Then, of course, getting online, watching what's happening, and taking it from ABC, and we do this a lot, right to where, and by the way, the learning curve is, is very quick. A couple of meetings, getting online, figuring everything out, and it opens the door to a whole new life for that surviving spouse. They get interested. They have questions. It, it's some of my favorite things to do is to teach. That's why I like getting the client's kids and grandkids as they get into business. It's the same thing. It's beginning from the beginning and making sure that, that you never fall behind again. That's a really important answer. And, and as you mentioned, document locator, we also, for some clients, have a digital version of the document locator, which we call the vault. So thanks for that answer. Jeff, when do I take RMDs? What is different about this year being 2020? Good question, because there's been lots of legislation in the past several months that may have confused many people out there. In uh, December, there was the SECURE Act, which pushed the requirement for required minimum distributions from age 70 and a half until age 72. So if you turned uh, 70 prior to July 1st of 2019, you became 70 and a half in 2019. And the old rules apply to you. You must take your required minimum distributions uh, now because you turned 70 and a half. If you didn't turn 70 until after July 1st of 2019, then there's a new rule that then applies to everyone going forward, which the new age for required minimum distributions is age 72. Now, this year is going to be different because of the CARES Act that was passed after the start of COVID that IRAs, inherited IRAs, and any employer-sponsored plans, 401ks, 403s, 457s, et cetera, waive the RMD requirement for the uh, year 2020. And so now RMDs will not be required for this year. And for many of our clients, that makes sense. If they don't need the RMD for current income, then they uh, do will not take it this year to lower their taxes for the year and also to allow that account to continue to grow with more money in it. It's gotten a little confusing by um, there was a 60-day rule. Now the IRS has just recently waived that, and so we're uh, waiting for final word on that. But So now it looks like all RMDs for the entire year can be returned for those people who may have taken them earlier in the year. It's a complicated subject, but the SECURE Act and the CARES Act give us clear instructions as to what we do, and we can help clients understand that. I have one question for each of you, and I'll go Jordan, Norton, Jeff with the same question. That Interestingly enough, it comes up frequently, so I'd love to have each of your opinion on this. Jordan, should I lease or buy my car? I'm, again, broken record, going to say this depends on your plan and your lifestyle. Typically, we'll talk through, you know, are you driving a lot of miles? Are you expecting a lot of damage to happen to a car, i.e., do you have young kids or are you towing? you know, using it for more of recreational use versus just day-to-day driving. Typically, what I will suggest is that as clients age, leasing tends to be easier from a maintenance standpoint. So 
So instead of having to worry about changing tires and changing oil and getting transmissions checked out, et cetera, it allows older clients to basically get a new car that's safer, more secure, and easier to maintain every three, two, three, five years. And then the other thing that we also talk through is when you do buy a car, basically the moment you drive it off the lot, it's worth less. And so we try to reiterate that car ownership is not to really be seen as form of investment unless you're talking kind of the, the older cars or foreign cars, which is a whole nother can of worms. But in general, I typically suggest to lease and to really take a look at your lifestyle overall. Norton, same question. Lease. First of all, Jordan's answer was terrific. Of course, you have to look at how long you're going to be owning that car, how many miles. But for me, as a, a stock guy, an investor, I like the time use of money. I don't want to put a whole lot of money in, into a car when I can lease it. Plus, they change every year with different bells and whistles. And unless you fall into the, the Jordan scenario, I'm a lease person. Jeff, same question. Should I lease or buy my car? Uh, another controversy. As several of you know, at least, I'm uh, originally from Vermont, where we're known to be uh, quite tight. We live by the standard, uh, don't buy depreciating assets. We do buy depreciating assets, but we keep them for a long time. Now, and a, a famous radio personality in the financial world, part of his program that my son always reminds me of, leasing is fleecing, but... For anyone who can make their car a business expense, it certainly makes leasing make more sense. And because cars are evolving so rapidly now and the safety features that are being included, that would tip me a little more toward Jordan's answer of one of the reasons why you ought to lease. I thought we would have a little bit more controversy on that one, but uh, it looks like everybody's aligned with leasing. Thank you guys for joining the show. Really appreciate having you on. As we mentioned earlier, document locator or for information on a digital version of the document locator, what we call the vault, please reach out to us at hello, H-E-L-L-O at Synergy Capital Solutions or at our website, synergycapitalsolutions.com. If you'd like to reach out to, to Jordan, Norton, or Jeff, you can reach out to them there. For our listeners, thank you so much for listening. As always, please subscribe and share. I am your host, David Vallier. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and we'll connect again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Your Financial Planet, the Synergize Your Capital podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Synergy Capital Solutions is a financial planning and investment management firm registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. And with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk. And there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. 
Synergy Capital Solutions and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Synergy Capital Solutions and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor.